0: So uh, Charlie, welcome. And uh, Michael, it's really a pleasure as well to uh, be doing um, these, uh, these events with the New School. And, uh, and we're really pleased that uh, Charlie has uh, joined us this evening. And I'm going to turn it over to Michael to introduce um, Charlie. So welcome again. Thank you so much. Yeah. Sure. Thank you, Steve. And- <laughs> Before I introduce Charlie, uh, I just want to say that uh, my wife, Charlotte, and I are passionate lovers of small, independent bookstores, and uh, (laughs) what what Steve and Kate are doing for the life of the mind and the life of the spirit in West Marin County is really unbelievable. There is such a powerful cultural nexus that they have created, and so we all just bow to you uh, for uh, for what you're doing for all of us. It's really an honor to do this work with you. So thank you very much. So uh, it is such a joy to be here with uh, all of you, uh, many of whom I know, and uh, old friends, many, and with my beloved friends, Charlie and Susan Halpern. Susan, where are you? Would you just stand for a minute so that people will know the other half of this. Um, I have known Charlie for, I guess, 15 years or so, something like that, Um, since he uh, came out to walk on the beach with me at Commonweal because he had just uh, taken over as president of the $300 million Nathan Cummings Foundation and he was trying to figure out what to do about mind-body health. And um, what he did about mind-body health was to transform the field of mind-body health from an outside, you know, uh, semi-quack understanding of it in the American mainstream into a mainstream phenomenon. Uh, We'll get into the details of that, but that was only one of the transformations that Charlie played a critical role in, in uh, American cultural life. Uh, I loved the, uh, when you look at his book, and I hope all of you will buy it as well, um, the foreword is by Robert Reich the uh, and and the Dalai Lama, and then you look at the quotes on the back from Bill Moyers, from Andrew Weil, from John Cabot zinn Bill Urey and Patricia Williams and Bill McKibben, and it just gives you some sense of... Uh, of the incredible range of people, uh, you know Ralph Nader, Ramdas, and many, many others, uh, with whose lives uh, Charlie's life has intersected. And what I liked particularly about uh, Bob Reich's introduction was that he talked about the two great movements in American uh, progressive culture. One was the uh, the movement for justice and sustainability, the outer movement, and the other was the, in, the inner movement for wisdom and the recovery of the spirit. And he points out in the introduction that, the, that conservatives have done a far better job of integrating the inner life of spirit and the outer life of policy as they see it. And that progressives, while they were good on policy, had kind of denied the inner life of the spirit and its integrity and the core relationship between the two. And Charlie saw that. He saw many of these things very clearly. And so one of the extraordinary contributions of his life has been the effort um, which is moving forward so powerfully to reintegrate for progressives the inner life and the life of uh, social justice. It reminded me... Uh, The great quote, I think, from Isaiah, uh, you know, what does thy God require but to love wisdom and do justice and walk humbly with thy God? And so it is that combination of loving wisdom and doing justice that has characterized this extraordinary life and this extraordinary friend. So, Charlie Halpern.
1: Thank you, Michael, for that uh, very generous introduction. Um, I would say that uh, our collaboration over these 15 years has been one of the joys of my life, and certainly one of the most fruitful and productive collaborations that I've been involved in. I have deep associations at this point with uh, Point Reyes and with this uh, bookstore and with Commonweal. Um, I first, first came to Commonweal 15 years ago. I moved to uh, the East Bay eight years ago, and one of the things I uh, discovered at that point was uh, with great pleasure, my discovery, that we could get to uh, Point Reyes Station in um, just over an hour. What a pleasure, and we've uh, Uh, We've driven across what I consider one of the most beautiful drives in the world across Lucas Valley Road to this place uh, time and time again. And we've uh, enjoyed uh, the great pleasures of the seashore and this community. And uh, Peter Barnes and the Mesa Refuge have been extremely good friends to us and very generous hosts. Uh, Susan's book... uh, the etiquette of illness and my book uh, would certainly not have been completed or certainly not as not completed when they were if it hadn't been for uh... the wonderful quiet and uh, supportive environment that we had uh... at the mesa refuge five minutes from from where we're sitting uh... here now and commonweal and the new school are uh, have been uh, a wonderful source of stimulation and support both when we were living in the East Coast and even more so since we've been out here so uh, I consider it a real honor and a a pleasure to be here with you all tonight talking about my book I've been the last six months uh, have been a a period of touring with this book Uh, my first book and uh, I had I had been warned by some of my friends that uh, a book tour was uh, uh, an unpleasant thing, I think, to be kind of treated like a uh, root canal work. (laughs) Uh, In fact, Bob Reich, who who did the uh, uh, forward for the the book, uh, told me that he thought that uh, book tours were the way publishers took revenge on authors. in fact, I found this book tour extremely interesting, and uh, uh, I, particularly opportunities to speak in uh, in independent bookstores like this one. What a what a great pleasure this is! Um, um, and um, uh, we started with the rule that we weren't going to go to any city where we didn't have some friends and some people that we wanted to see. So, so that that limited the tour and and guaranteed that it was going to be. Uh, a pleasure. It's also been an opportunity uh, for me to learn. For example, uh, the experience of talking about meditation and inner, and inner exploration, inner growth at a place like Harvard Law School or, Col- or Columbia Law School. It's a very interesting and challenging uh, experience um, and, and very much worth doing. And similarly, it's challenging to go to Zen centers and meditation retreat centers and talk to them about social justice and the importance of, of being deeply engaged with, uh, uh, with the challenges that confront us now. And um, it's been and interesting to this, this kind of looking to my... I, I, you can't say left and right because it's looking inward and outward, I suppose, uh, more accurate is especially interesting now, because meditation and inner and inner work is starting to find a foothold in mainstream institutions, albeit one that is uh, uh, still tentative and uh, uh, some, something that we all have to uh, work at. But the book tour was an opportunity for me, really, to get into this, to go to, not a bookstore like this, but to go to Barnes & Noble at 83rd and Broadway. <laughs> and uh, uh, sit in their little area for readings and tell people we're going to start with a five-minute meditation. And right there on Broadway to lead a meditation was a very... It was interesting for me, and it was interesting and unusual for the people who were doing this. This is not the way things start there. So what, what this book is about, as, as uh, Michael uh, has uh, made clear... Is, is the question of how we can be effective in the world and doing good works in a very challenging time and to do the inner work that supports that and makes it more sustainable. Making waves and riding the currents. Making waves means the, the work of social activism. I'll describe how I got into the business of making waves uh, in a minute. And then the subtitle, Activism and the Practice of Wisdom. So let me, let me start with uh, 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 a story about uh, where I came from, uh, uh, <clears throat> which is uh, I, I was raised in the home of a judge and trained as a lawyer. I went through the elite educational processes, graduating from Yale Law School in 1964, and entering a corporate law practice, which very quickly uh, seemed to me uh, a mistake for me just didn't work. And I had an opportunity while I was at that um, law firm. I received a call one day from the chief judge of the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia. Uh, And he asked me if I would take a a, a case, a pro bono case with no fee, on behalf of a mentally ill person in in the mental hospital for uh, uh, the District of Columbia. And he wanted me to handle this case in the district court. To explore the question of whether there was a right to treatment, a right to receive adequate treatment for a person who is involuntarily confined in a mental hospital. Uh, His theory was that there was a constitutional argument, but he wanted me to explore this. And uh, there was a particular uh, case that he had remanded to the district court. And he gave it to me, my first first case that I ever handled. Um, um, before a judge whom I anticipated might be hostile and not very much interested in the rights of mental patients. At this time, the, the legal doctrine was that patients in mental hospitals had virtually no rights. The Constitution did not penetrate the, the walls of the mental hospital. So I walk into the district court. All rise, the bailiff said, cutting our conversation short. I'm a uh, conversation with my client, Charles Rouse. The Federal District Court for the District of Columbia is now in session. Judge Alexander Holtzoff presiding. I knew that Judge Holtzoff, a crusty old conservative, small, bald, and waspish, had no use for innovative theories and no use for activist judges like Bazelon, the chief judge who had remanded this case. This hearing was a skirmish in a long-running battle between the two judges. Judge Holtsoff's head was barely visible above the bench, and the expression on his face suggested that he smelled something disagreeable. (laughs) As I spoke, he tapped his pencil on the bench in front of him impatiently. I tried to keep my focus to speak confidently and persuasively. I tried to put the case in context. In this novel case, Your Honor, we will show that my client has been held for three and a half years without treatment, After he had been found not guilty by reason of insanity for an offense that carried a maximum sentence of one year. Our expert testimony will show that the hospital's claim to have given him milieu treatment is a sham. That he's been denied his right to have adequate treatment during his incarceration and he's entitled to be released. How long will your presentation of the case take, counsel? Judge Holtsoff broke in. Probably two days, Judge Holtsoff, I said. Counsel, you'd better think of ways to cut your testimony short. We're a busy court here. While you and the chief judge may claim that this case is unique and deserving of special attention, all litigants think that their cases are uniquely important. We have a busy calendar. Realizing that this could become a debacle, I began imagining a confrontation in Baslon's chambers. You what, he would snarl, his, fist, his face twisted in anger. You didn't present your witness's testimony. There's no record for us to consider. You certainly made a mess of this. Perhaps Abe Fortas, the senior partner in my firm, chose the wrong associate. Perhaps you chose the wrong profession. <laughs> I looked over at my client, who was slumped down in his chair, visibly deflated, imagining a return to his endless days in the mental hospital. Relax, I whispered. The fight isn't over. There will be more than one round. Well, in fact, there was more than one round. We lost before Judge Holsoff, after I had taken a fairly severe working over. Uh, And then we won in the Court of Appeals and... uh, and Rouse was released. <clears throat> uh, and it was a, it was, this case was a turning point for me because it suggested new possibilities, new ways that my life in the law might go. Instead of representing corporations in matters that held no interest for me, I had an opportunity I could see to do something that was really significant, to use my skills in a way that uh, could have a real influence in the world. As Rouse re-entered his interrupted life, I returned to mine, feeling that I had some unfinished business. I had looked deep into the system that confined thousands of mentally ill people against their will in custodial institutions. No one was challenging these mental hospitals and holding their practices up to constitutional scrutiny. Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund were expanding and enforcing the rights of African Americans. Who was giving comparable attention to the rights of the mentally ill? And of course, the answer was nobody was giving comparable attention to the rights of the mentally ill. And suddenly, I thought, this is an interesting opportunity. And after a short while in my uh, uh, corporate law job, a small group of friends and I started to talk about creating a new kind of institution which would do this kind of work in the mental health field and then we start thinking, well, how about the environment field? This was a time when there was no systematic practice of environmental law. Many of you are probably familiar with organizations like the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Defense Fund. It didn't exist then. There was no national organization doing that kind of work. So we thought, well, why don't we see if, if we can start something? This became known as the public interest law firm. And the one we started in Washington, D.C. was called the Center for Law and Social Policy. It became uh, a model for many others, and uh, uh, throughout the 70s and through the present time, these public interest law firms around the country, uh, public advocates in San Francisco being a great example of that here in, in the Northern California, have had a profound impact on the way... Uh, law works. and um, uh, 1969 was the critical year for me as I was leaving this corporate law firm and uh, we had launched a public interest law firm, the Center for Law and Social Policy, um, uh, funded by a few foundations that were willing to take a chance on something that was uh, quite novel and untested. Uh, some of our biggest early successes were in the environmental field. We were tough and aggressive, skillful lawyers and um, And our original theory was that we were going to become, like the corporate law firms were for their corporate clients. We were going to do that for nonprofit organizations and for uh, unorganized uh, community groups and community organizations. So that that was the theory, and then it's, it, it turned out that it was working. Uh, within our, the first six months of our activity, uh, we had uh, challenged seven of the largest oil companies in the world, which were about to build a, a pipeline across Alaska. Uh, and uh, we stopped them for four years while they actually went back and looked at the environmental challenges that they were facing and designed a, a pipeline that was at least... Uh, uh, well thought through from an environmental point of view. Quite startling that they hadn't done that in advance, but they hadn't. It was an exciting time, and during this period, it became clear to us that we were going to have an, we had an opportunity not just to do to practice a different kind of law for for a different class of clients, but that also we could start thinking about our lives differently, the way we related to each other, what our organization looked like within the center, and we we. We had, as I say, we had thought of it as, a, as a, uh, uh, my, my firm was called Arnold & Porter, the firm that I had practiced with. We thought this was going to be an Arnold & Porter of, for uh, citizen interests. Well, it turned out to be something quite different, and it became quite different because we decided we were not going to look like a law firm. We weren't going to engage with each other. We were going to try to engage with each other as whole people. We brought in a student program. We had 15 students come each semester to participate as interns in this uh, 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 program. It was a very exciting and heady time from an interpersonal and from a community-building point of view, as well as from our uh, very successful litigation program. All of this led me, uh, after I had uh, been uh, in the public interest law world in Washington for uh, uh, almost a decade, to go and start uh, a public interest law school in New York City. What an opportunity to start, not only to start a new law school, I was invited to be the first dean, uh, to start a new law school, but with an invitation to redesign the curriculum and the way law was taught so that we would be training lawyers specifically to move into public interest law jobs. This was not going to be just another law school that tried to emulate the, uh, uh, the traditional models. What an exciting opportunity. Uh, and um, we moved up to New York. It was the City University of New York so that it had uh, public uh, funding behind it. And we really had an extraordinary opportunity. One thing I hadn't fully understood was just how hard uh, this job was going to be. New York City is a very hard place to start anything new. The City University of New York is a tough place. Resources are short, and people people say that uh, uh, public institutions of higher education combine the worst features of public bureaucracy. And academic bureaucracy, you put those two things together, and you have a system which is not very hospitable to uh, novel approaches. And it was really really wearing me down. Uh, I was trying to lead a law school program that would train whole people, people who would work from their heads and their hearts, who would bring compassion, equanimity, and community to the core of their work. And I often found myself angry and frustrated at war with the man who had hired me, appalled by the political corruption, misunderstood by the local bar, alienated from some of the students and faculty, frustrated by the uncomprehending bureaucracy, frightened by the lawlessness on the Long Island Expressway. I felt isolated and battled and over my head, emotionally, morally, and psychologically. Too many nights, I came home exhausted and dejected, falling asleep immediately after dinner with my briefcase full of unread memoranda and curriculum proposals. This was the time when I really started to uh, think about how I could work with inner resources and with outer resources to... uh, manage this very difficult situation I found myself in. And in the book, I talk about some of the the different strategies I adopted to uh, keep myself centered and balanced and committed to doing this work, this incredibly important work, in what was uh, a hostile and unsupportive uh, environment. So I called a friend of mine who had started a new law school elsewhere, And I thought we should have lunch together. Maybe he could warn me about some of the pitfalls so that everything wasn't an unpleasant surprise. Uh, And um, let me describe uh, my uh, conversation with him because it it turned out to be also very much a, uh, uh, a turning point. His apartment was in a high rise on the southern edge of Spanish Harlem. In the living room, The main piece of furniture was a wooden platform raised a foot above the floor with a few cushions on it. On the walls hung softly draped painted cloths, pictures of Asian deities and demons locked in combat, arrayed along the sides of fantastic cliffs and mountains." Take your shoes off and sit down while I warm up some sake, he said, leaving me alone in the room to try to figure out where I was and how to comply with his instructions. (laughs) After taking off my shoes, I I crawled around on the platform, trying unsuccessfully to arrange a few cushions so they were reasonably comfortable. I wondered if he sat here to read the New York Times with his morning coffee. (laughs) He came back into the room with a ceramic carafe of sake and two small cups. He had taken off his Savile Row suit coat and put on a silk robe embroidered with Japanese characters. We lifted our cups and drank to new friendships and new law schools. I'm a Buddhist, he said. I had never met a Buddhist before, and here was one who looked like a wasp investment banker. (laughs) So, um... I described my situation to him. He said, you don't have to describe it, you know. Queens and he had started the new law school in Hawaii. They're not really so different, he said. So I basically know what your problem is. And he said, you might try meditation. Does it mean that I have to get into all of this, I asked, pointing to the, the, the tankas and the statues of demons with their eyes popping out and tongues coiling like corkscrews? No, he said, start with something simple. Get up a little early in the morning. Find a quiet place. Light a candle. Sit comfortably and pay attention to your breath. If thoughts arise, observe them as they come and go. Then bring your attention back to your breath. Do it every morning for 20 minutes. Simple, but not easy. What what good will that do me? I asked. Try it, he said. You'll be surprised. This is the essence of Buddhist practice. They've been refining these techniques for 2,500 years. You might find that the simple practice gives you a wonderful, peaceful way to start the day and a quiet place in your mind that you can return to from time to time during your hectic schedule. It can help you to avoid getting locked into polarized arguments. So I tried it and, uh, and... and it, it worked, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't perfect and it didn't keep me out of all confrontations with the chancellor of the City University of New York when he was trying to elbow me into admitting some un- incompetent student to our first year class, but it, it really uh, proved to be helpful. And not only was it helpful in dealing with the stress of this extremely difficult and important job, but it also was something that, that stayed with me uh, through the years. And as I started to go more deeply into meditation practice, to start finding my way into retreats with great masters like Thich Nhat Hanh, the first teacher I studied with in an in a, in a extended uh, uh, situation, it was, it was really extremely important to me. Then, after I had been at the law school uh, long enough to earn a sabbatical, uh, I was approached, uh, after I returned from my sabbatical, by a f- the family of Nathan Cummings, which was in the process of starting a new foundation. Uh, as Michael said, they had $300 million, and they had a, a general idea of what they wanted to do with this money that they're father or grandfather had left to them, but not not much clarity about it. And uh, they offered me the opportunity to join them as their first foundation president and to help guide them into creating uh, a new foundation. And that was the place where I really had an opportunity to work most fully with the integration of social justice and activism on the one hand and meditation and inner work on the other. And um, it was in that context that uh, I started to work with Michael and with other people. We set up at a certain point a a nonprofit called the Center for Contemplative Mind in Society, whose purpose it was was to bring contemplative disciplines and contemplative practice into mainstream institutions, into universities, into the law, into the training of new judges, uh, into journalism, into the corporate world, and that has proved to be uh, extremely uh, interesting and important work. Uh, the culture, the culture is now more open and more receptive uh, to uh, contemplative uh, practice, and we have an opportunity to uh, uh, bring these together into a mature relationship. I call this. Uh, Uh, the the, the subtitle, Activism and the Practice of Wisdom. And I think that meditation practice and other other, uh, approaches are important uh, to the cultivation or practice of wisdom. And I think that wisdom is something that can be practiced. That each of us who makes the determination to walk a wisdom path can move in that direction. Each of us will not end up at the place of wisdom of the Dalai Lama but we can all move ourselves along in that uh, direction. And this this is the hope I express in the book. I hope that the practice of wisdom will lead to the creation of a new activism, one that is more grounded in compassion and community and less grounded in anger and divisiveness. Each person who brings the practice of wisdom to her work can be more effective and balanced, And together, we can build organizations and strategies that are more sustainable and less polarizing. So that's what the book is about. And Michael, perhaps those comments or your review of the book will lead you to raise some questions that you want to talk about.
0: I think I'm going to ask you some unexpected questions, Charlie. Um, But let me start with a fundamental one from my observation. Um, You have, as you describe in the book, uh, a long and loving partnership with your wife, Susan. Uh, And you've known her for a very long time. Hmm. Uh, How old were you when you first met Susan?
1: I believe I was 13 and she was 11. 11.
0: Right. And you met at, uh, you met at a, a camp in Canada run by her father, is that right?
1: Right. Her parents.
0: Right, by her parents. So what has been the impact on your life of this long partnership with your wife, Susan? <laughs>
1: Um, well it's uh, the impact on my life has been very profound and the story that I've just kind of briefly outlined about this trajectory of institutional uh, change and creativity uh, would not have happened if it weren't for that partnership we married very young we started having children very young and uh from the earliest point, she became she was totally supportive of my efforts to push push the boundaries and to uh, follow my values and uh, um, amb- ambitions to work for a more social socially just world. She was a hundred percent behind that and very supportive. Um, she was also very helpful to me in moving from this intensely cognitive, analytic uh, persona that I had. I mean, you know, law school demand really hones a certain set of qualities uh, 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 that are analytic and rational. And I was very good at that game. And then certain other traits don't Either atrophy or never develop at all. Compassion, the relationships of the heart. And Susan was, was always reminding me to try to keep these things t- t- in balance. And you know, sometimes it was hard and sometimes it was easy. But, but our relationship and, and the responsibilities I had for raising small children. I mean, when, when we brought home our first child, neither of us had, basically, neither of us had ever seen a child close up before. <laughs> And we had to we had to kind of work that through, yes. and uh, it was such a heart opening for me. It was just it was it, w- it was an amazing thing. And then at a certain point, she went to, to social work school and became a psychotherapist, and she brought a level of psychological sophistication into our relationship. And she uh, she started to educate
0: me about uh, about that. Um, let me take you there to the point where Susan is diagnosed with cancer later on, many years later. Uh, and then Susan and I became involved. She became a co-leader of our cancer health program, uh, ran a program in New York uh, after a long career uh, doing housing for the mentally ill in New York. What you've described the practice of wisdom. You've described the impact of your contemplative practice. What was the impact of Susan's cancer diagnosis on your inner evolution of mind?
1: Well, first, first, I would say that the um, the inner work I had done made me made it possible for me to engage with her cancer in a, in, a, in a much deeper and fuller way. Um, I don't quite know how I would have handled that if I hadn't. Um, if i hadn 't done this inner work, so I could be present with her when she was doing chemotherapy, when she was doing stem cell transplants and things of that kind, and we could we could we could really uh, be with it together and um, the uh, uh, her illness also brought home to me the the
0: mm-hmm.
1: in, in the most immediate and direct way the reality of uh, kind of impermanence and uncertainty of everything we face everything we face uh, the idea of these ideas which are core to the buddhist practice which i had been hearing about but this brought it uh, home to me directly and i would say that um, having having illness right in the center of our family made us more appreciative of each other and the work we did and and um, and our time together, so that we've worked, it, worked with that more closely.
0: You you focused on uh, the extraordinary movement from your life uh, in the law uh, to contemplative mind, but a very major chapter was the extraordinary contribution you made at the Nathan Cummings Foundation to the mainstream of mind-body health. Uh, one of the extraordinary things about the Nathan Cummings Foundation just for all of you who aren't involved in in philanthropy, is that a $300 million foundation is not a small foundation, but it's not a really large foundation. It's a middle-sized foundation. And those of us who've watched philanthropy for a long time have often found that it's those middle-sized foundations that are not wrapped in huge bureaucracies like Ford or Rockefeller, but where you have four or five program officers directly responsible to a president are the places where real movement can take place. But very often they don't. And so one of the things Charlie did that many of us, uh, including his former staff members, Rachel Cowan, Andrea Kidd, many others, reflecting back on Charlie's tenure at the Nathan Cummings Foundation, realized very powerfully is that this was one of the most effective mid-sized foundations any of us experienced in this period in American life. So Charlie's staffing decisions were so interesting. So, for example, in, uh, in the mind-body-health area, he picked a African-American welfare rights activist uh, named Andrea Kidd to run this very, quote, white world program of mind-body-health. In Jewish life, he picked a rabbi, Rachel Cowan, who'd been born a wasp, you know, a wasp in good standing, who... Converted to Judaism because her husband Paul Cowan re found his Judaism and then became a rabbi, you know. And so he was, his choices to run the major programs were extremely unusual choices, (laughs) extremely. So I want to ask you, Charlie, tell us how the Bill Moyers program, Healing in the Mind, which was the transformative moment in the history of mind-body health, a five-part series. Uh, that really mainstreamed mind-body health. How did you envision that, and how did you make that happen?
1: Well, let's see. We we started making grants for mind-body health programs at a time when uh, foundations weren't doing that. And uh, it looked to us like there was this... Uh, uh, extraordinary opportunity. Interesting things were happening, but they still hadn't reached the level of uh, uh, legitimacy from the point of view of Robert Wood Johnson or or the Rockefeller Foundation, or the foundations that were were really part of the medical establishment. When was that, Sean? This was in uh, 1990. And what was going on at Commonweal, the, the Cancer Help Program, is one of the things that certainly... Uh, Opened my eyes to this, Uh, but people like John kabat Zinn, who have become very effective and influential since then, were really just on the uh, you know kind of at the at the takeoff point. The trajectory was upward, but it was at the takeoff point for his program at the University of Massachusetts. And uh, uh, Daniel Goleman, who has since uh, uh, been mining the subject of uh, emotional intelligence. Came to me one day and made, and, and we, we had a series of conversations about mind body uh, health. And he urged on me that this was that moment when some audacious foundation, innovative, pushing the edge could really lead to very big dividends. So we started looking for those opportunities to make those grants, to Commonweal, to Cabot's uh, uh, Zin's programs, and to others like it. David Eisenberg, a, a, a specialist in Chinese medicine, who was at Harvard, made we made one of our an early grant to him. And uh, Bill Moyers, uh, uh, Bill Moyers, you know, because he is always he's always looking for new programming and new new money to support it. We had a series of conversations too, and talked about a number of the things that interested him. One of them was mind body healing. That was that was an important one. What The short of it is, uh, I introduced him to some of our grantees, you, you among them, and he ended up doing a five-part series, each of them, f- as it happened, focusing on the work of one of our grantees. Now, what does a mid-sized foundation do in this situation? We don't have enough money to support Moyer's uh, programs, which I think in those days were basically about a million dollars an hour. It's not cheap making these documentaries. Um, so we, we pulled together partners from the foundation world. This was our overall, this is the strategy of a mid-sized foundation. Bring in other mid-sized foundations or bring in some big foundations too. I learned quickly how to play this game where we had ideas and, and uh, ambitions within our foundation that were way beyond our resources. Part of the, the, part of the excitement of what we had to do you, you know I, I had thought erroneously that foundation the fu- being a foundation president means giving money away. great oversimplification first of all, the main thing a foundation president does is say no <laughs> for every grant we make, we say no ten times uh, second you 've got to manage this huge amount of money and you, you you know you want to invest it in a responsible way you want to get the mo- biggest return you want to make sure that you 're not You're not investing in corporations that are doing things that are antithetical to your program objectives, and you have to, if you're particularly, if really for any foundation, you have to persuade other foundations that they want to invest in the things that you think are important. See, I thought, you know, when I was starting the Center for Law and Social Policy, I knew I had to raise money when I took over as president of the Nathan Cummings Foundation, I didn't think the part of the job was raising money. We had $300 million. But it turns out, if we wanted to see a, a program like the Moyers series happen, I had to go out and raise money. And so that was part of what I, I did to make the Moyers series happen. It was a, it was an ex, it's a, it's a wonderful series. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's still around. And it's uh, timely today. and. Uh, uh, And it has had a transformative impact in in medicine. It's I mean it's every it's every grant maker's dream. I mean you know usually you don't get usually you're not sure what your grants accomplish. That one we could be pretty clear about what it accomplished.
0: There's so many things I could ask you, and I want to turn to this very rich audience in a minute. But I I just want to ask you a final question, uh, which is um, taking you out of the book and into the present. Pregnant political, ecological moment that we are living in. Uh, uh, An election that we have no idea who is going to uh, win at this moment. Uh, extraordinary environmental, political, and other uh, challenges. Uh, you've had this incredibly discerning capacity to see key emergent themes uh, that you've acted on throughout your life. When you look at the present moment, where do you see the greatest opportunities for collective social intervention?
1: Um, Let let me start with a a couple of reflections. First of all, I think that the, the... in the book, I, I make the case for an activism grounded in wisdom. And I think that is... I organize my thoughts around that heading, activism grounded in wisdom. I think that the kind of uh, intensity and creativity that we brought to our activism in uh, nineteen in the 70s, which was a, a tremendous flowering of... Uh, uh, nonprofit organizations that were engaged in activist work from Natural Resources Defense Council to the Puerto Rican Legal Defense Fund um, uh, to Consumers Union uh, to Earth Justice. Um, there, 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 was a, there was a wonderful uh, range of activities. Though many of those organizations that still exist today are doing business very much in the way they did then. The same kind of uh, intense adversarial, angry energy. Um, the same um, polarized mentality. Um, and I think I think they're going to, they will be much more effective if they take a wisdom path. First of all, it means that they that that the, the, thats the way you deal with the burnout problem. The fact that people are not trying to give 70 hours a week to get to act, to win it this time round and to once and for all uh, overcome the opposition—we're not going to—we're not going to deal with today's struggles effectively with that mindset. It's not going to happen. You know, the, the, biggest, the biggest environmental case we could imagine was this Alaska pipeline case that I, I uh, mentioned to you. And it was huge, huge, bigger than any. Uh, as David Brower said to us when he brought us the case, he said, this is the biggest construction project since the construction of the Great Wall of China. <laughs> um, but it's a, you know you look at it today from the perspective of the environmental challenges we're facing today, it looks like it's a re- it is a huge and important regional problem, but it's only a regional problem. It's not like global warming. And maybe our tough adversarial approach worked then, although I suggest in the book that that may, because we didn't see this as part of the global, the global issue of... Um, Uh, reliance on fossil fuels and this incredibly profligate way of life we have in America. Because we didn't see this in that larger context, uh, we probably uh, weren't as effective as we could be when you look at the larger problem. (laughs) But if you're dealing with global warming, global climate disruption, you can't even begin to think of things in in these kinds of compartmentalized ways and thinking that we're the good guys, we've got the answers, and and the oil companies are the bad guys. We're all in this mess together. And as soon as we can... Now, that doesn't mean that we give up our activism or ideals, but it means that we go about... We bring wisdom into our... Development of strategies and the way we uh, think of our uh, our work and our world. Uh, the, uh, the the other thing that seems uh, uh, important to me is 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 uh, the current political the current political situation because I feel that this presidential race is uh, um, the most important of my lifetime. And one of uh, deep consequences for the lives of my with deep consequences for the lives of my children and grandchildren. Um, And I'm not here to give a political speech. Uh, I did meet Barack Obama 10 years ago when I was setting up a uh, a think tank called DEMOS, a network for ideas and action, which is now in its sixth year. And a friend of mine in Chicago said, you ought to meet this young African-American state legislator and think about how you can involve him in your work. So we had a couple of meetings in Chicago uh, while he was still in the state legislature. And I was... I was overwhelmed by him, and then I read his book. He had he had just written his book. Um, the audacity called? of hope. The audacity of hope. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. Dreams for my father.
0: Sorry,
1: not the audacity of dreams for my father. And I thought this was an astonishing. This was an astonishing book. That some. That this young man uh, could write such a book with such depth and. Uh, Leave aside the literary skill, which is astonishing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautifully written book. Um, but I thought he was an extraordinary person. He served briefly as a member of the board of trustees of the of Demos, and I got to know him then. And when I thought, when I discovered that a couple of years ago there was a possibility that he was going to run for president, I immediately signed up. Obama 08, he's ready, why wait? There was a small group of people who greeted each other with that. Uh, and I think that he is somebody who is um, open to a wisdom perspective. He's showing, he's showing, this campaign shows just how hard it is for a, peace and, for a person who, has, who is grounded and has balance to succeed in this political environment. And maybe he's making some decisions that I wouldn't as as we go along. But I have tremendous hopes uh, for him, uh, and I think the the generational transfer, this display of openness to uh, uh, to racial difference, uh, is going is, is could make his election as president a, a transformative event. And <clears throat> in these next 75 days, I'm devoting. Uh, a great deal of my time and energy to that. And it seems to me that the importance of this election can't be overstated, and that uh, those of us who think so really should be pulling out the stops and making... You know, it's not, it's not going to be easy. The election of, uh, uh, of an African-American president of the United States will never be easy. Never be easy. Uh, but uh, I feel very grateful that that I have an opportunity to give the support that I can give to such a person, such a candidate.
0: I want to open it up to the audience now. And let me ask you if you can, we'll do this best, if you can keep your questions brief, say your name, and if you can stand up and speak toward the front, because we only have these lavalier mics. And if uh, we're going to use this for KWMR, it would be great to be able to hear the questions. So anybody want to start? Yes. Hi. My name is um, Paula Kravitz, and I'm curious to know how your meditation practice has changed over the years from when you first started out and had a certain experience with it to what your practice is today and how you're experiencing that as well. So the question, Charlie, is how your meditation practice changed over the years.
1: Thank you. uh, my meditation began... I, I read you these simple instructions I got, and that's how I started meditating. And for several years, that's all I did. And I viewed it as a way of staying balanced, staying centered, dealing with the stresses of a very, of an unusually difficult job. Um, and then gradually I came to realize, as I started to come across really wise and experienced teachers and to do meditation not just 20 minutes a day, but to spend a week in silence with some teaching and supervision, I found that my meditation was really opening, opening me to the idea of then the possibility of wisdom. This is something that grew out of my meditation practice. I don't see how anyone can aspire to wisdom and live at the pace of conventional life working 50, 60 hours a week, having a a constant barrage of information and media noise coming at us. We have to be able to pull back from that and do it in a systematic way, I think. And I came to see that. I describe it in the book. In these longer retreats, there's no question that a catalytic experience for me, too, was to spend 10 days with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. This was one of the things that my work in the foundation did. Some of you may have read a book called The Jew in the Lotus by Roger Kamenitz. Uh, well, I, I was in that room with this group of rabbis and monks and His Holiness. And it was extraordinary for me. I mean, I had, I had run into uh, uh, the exceptional brilliance of Harvard and Yale professors, but I had never had been exposed to someone like the Dalai Lama. And that, uh, uh, and, from, and I tied that into my meditation experience, and that opened up to me as I uh, uh, the possibility of, of uh, being on that path.
0: curly's being very modest. he wasn't only in the room. he commissioned Robert Kahnements to write "The Jew and the Lotus" and set up the whole set of meetings with the Dalai Lama. so this is a, an act of uh, the kind of modesty that uh, one finds with Charlie a lot. Other questions and comments, please. Yes, please. My name is Susan Miller. Uh, You mentioned that your foundation has a module on Jewish life. And I wanted to ask you, um, how does your wisdom perspective uh, apply itself to a central problem in Jewish life, which is... The conflict. So I'm going to repeat the question for the KWMR. How does your wisdom perspective and the Foundation's program on Jewish life apply to the uh, Israel-Palestinian issues?
1: Well, first, I, I, to, to be clear, I, I have not been associated with the Foundation for the last uh, uh, eight years. I, I left the presidency some years ago. While I was there, uh, we had a, a grant program in Israel, and our effort was to and, and it, our effort was to work to support the peace process. Um, particular th- partic- and there were some promising openings in the period when I was there. So it, it, you look back and it looked like, it looks like a, a, a time of golden possibility. There was a, uh, we supported, for example, a regional effort to deal with environmental issues around the Dead Sea. We had, so the Jordanians and Palestinians and, and, and Israelis were working together on environmental problems in a way that was unprecedented at that time, all of which, of course, is blown apart. Um, but the work we were doing then. Uh, I think is is the direction which any effort has to take at this time, which is to look for what is common among people, to make to make connections uh, among people, and to uh, bring to bear on the. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a hugely complicated situation, and there are ways that. That each of us, and particularly the United States government, could be working much more creatively to try to support the the peace process and the peace forces wherever they appear in Palestinian or in Jordanian or Egyptian uh, or Israeli uh, arenas
0: other questions
1: I, I, just just one other thing I, I wanted to add, add to that is, is that what, what I've said about uh, that particularly intractable problem has got to be true of the, uh, the other amazingly complicated and difficult diplomatic challenges we face from Zimbabwe to Georgia. To bring a, a wisdom perspective to our foreign policy is, it, it's hard to imagine after the, the eight years we've just lived through but it, it is a possibility, and it doesn't just mean going back
0: to, uh, to, to uh, the Clinton Doctrine or anything of that sort. Before I take the next question, uh, one question I want to interpose, and I'm not sure we can solve this, but I just want to say it. You speak as though it's possible to know what wisdom is. And you also speak as though wisdom brings a substantive policy orientation to complex issues. And I'm just not sure either of those things are true. I'm not sure that it is easy to know what wisdom is, and I particularly am not sure that wisdom has a single policy valence. Uh, My view of wisdom is that wisdom is held by people with tremendously different political perspectives. And that if it, if it has any common content, which I think we'd agree on, it is the search for common ground. But that to suggest that the practice of wisdom somehow enables us to disentangle complex policy issues in a specifically better way as opposed to simply a, a process improvement i'm not sure if i hear you right that i would go beyond its value for process i'm not sure that it brings any substantive insight into any specific policy issue
1: well i think Michael, that I didn't mean to make as broad a claim for, okay. for my understanding of wisdom. And in fact, I think I have much more of a, of a, a process answered, okay. too. Uh, I've suggested in, in uh, the book that as wisdom practice develops, clarity of vision emerges. Yes. Wisdom practice makes the interconnection of all people more, impa- more apparent. Another dimension of wisdom practice is the recognition of impermanence and the constancy of change.
0: Right.
1: So if you, have, if you have this heightened clarity and this sense of interbeing, as to use Thich Nhat Hanh's term, and the recognition of impermanence and a, sent, and a kind of humility in approaching these things, that is, to me, a, a, a wisdom perspective that is invaluable in dealing with the problem in Israel or the other challenges in the globe, which are some diplomatic and some uh, rooted in, in, in other sources like the contamination of the biosphere and things of that kind. But I, that's the claim I'm making. Okay, that, and that's is, useful that's, to me because yeah.
0: I misunderstood how far in your response to the question about Israel you were willing to push the value of wisdom and disentangling it. Your your claim is that it, the heightened awareness will help facilitate the finding of a solution as opposed to the wisdom that leads you to a to discern a specific path whereas somebody with a very different political agenda, also with wisdom, might arrive at a completely different answer to. Yes, I think, that, I, I, I think that's right. Okay. Catherine Fulton had a question. So
1: does Genevieve. Oh, good. I was wondering, in your mind, for what purpose did you begin to write
0: the book and um, what inspired you to do that? Charlie, what purpose did you write the book for and what inspired you to write?
1: I think... Uh, I started with the idea that this was an interesting story. Uh, and um, <clears throat> in particular, this whole starting the public, the public interest law part of it, I thought was, was something that uh, nobody who was there in the early days had written a book before. And I thought it start, it, it's good uh, to, to get that down, to, to write that story. So I thought that, that was where I started from. And then as I got along with it, I, got, I, I, de- I developed this idea about uh, that this idea of, of, of melding the outer work, the w- doing good work in the world, with cultivation of inner resources uh, was an unusual idea to bring those two things together. And, and, and as I look back about what was significant in my life, it's that combination of things that's important. So that's what I wanted to bring to the center of this book. Then I kind of organized the different events in my life around that theme.
0: Okay. I just wanted to follow up on the question that Michael asked, um, uh, which is um, for you to say a little more about the activism of the 70s and how it would come into perspective today with a wisdom perspective, and especially in the context of what we know about all great social movements always have taken to heart um, Frederick Douglass's great thing of power never conceded anything without a demand and it never has and it never will um, so how we kind of reckon with the fundamental realities of activism and structures of power with what it would mean to do that now in a different way um, with a wisdom perspective And that's hard to summarize for KWMR, but... uh, Sorry. Great great question, but if I were to try to get to the heart of it, you're asking, uh, since power does not cede anything without demand, how does one reconcile that with a a wisdom orientation? You asked with great complexity a a core set of issues around that.
1: I... uh, I think it's, it's important that we be fairly modest and tentative as we, as we try to design what a new activism grounded in wisdom looks like. But, I mean, some things are clear. First of all, you, I, I'd want to ask, how are the activists living their lives? Are they, are they going 80 miles an hour and fueling, you know, uh, 24-7 and fueling their activities with, uh, with uh, double espressos? Four times a day. So the f- the first thing that I, as I as I'm looking for the new, the model of the activism grounded in wisdom, I'd look at the way people live their lives, and and hope to see uh, uh, people living lives in balance, with times for in- inner work and reflection built into the process. i'd, I'd uh, uh, if if i were redesigning if i were redesigning a, a public interest law firm today i would uh, i would have a meditation room in the center of the uh, of the law office um, i would I, I think it's important not to confuse activism grounded uh, in wisdom with a kind of passivity or a, or a kind of soft-headed analysis of uh, what really needs to be done. At the same time, uh, not to start with the assumption that we're we're all in a fight to the death. I was, I when I was at the Center for Law and Social Policy, I had this really, uh, I think it's a, a, a really uh, polarized view of the world, and I. I Ignored some basic facts about how interdepend- inter- intertwined our public interest law firm was with a lot of the corporations and the corporate law firms that were our adversaries, and if, I think if I had a fuller and richer recognition of those complicated relationships, I think I would have I would have carried myself differently. We all would have carried ourselves differently, and we would have. Uh, Our demeanor would have created new opportunities for collaboration that uh, that weren't present. So sometimes the changes are going to be fairly subtle, but uh, other times they'll be clearly recognizable. And say, yes, that's the kind of thing we want to be working for. And if I were the head of a major national environmental organization, I'd be work. I'd be. Trying to steer in that direction. Try really start asking ourselves the question: What would it mean? How would we alter our organ, our operations, if we wanted to have a program that is more grounded in collaboration and a sense of community and less grounded in anger and fear? What would it look like, and how would we move from where we are to where we want to be?
0: Let's take one last question, and then we can socialize a little bit in the back. Yes, ma'am. Um,
1: you about pathways to wisdom, processes, examples, people's lives. And I was really excited when I saw someone was coming to speak on wisdom. And it seems to be a kind of an ethereal thing to me. So is, it a, is there a way that you can define with clarity exactly what wisdom means once it is achieved? I think you told us how to utilize a process of cooperation rather than adversary
0: positions. And I understand that, and that's absolutely correct in my mind. But I would love to know with clarity just exactly what the definition of wisdom is when one achieves it. So the question is, what, what, what with, what with clarity is the definition of wisdom? Where is wisdom found?
1: I, I, I'm afraid I have to, I, I, I can't, I can't give you a clear answer of what wisdom looks like once it's achieved. I really, see, I see it much more, may, maybe when. Maybe, when I have a little more of it myself i 'll be able to answer better, but I see wisdom as a process I do see it that way is that, is that we, we can each we, we can become more wise in our relationships with our immediate circle of friends and our dealing with with the great political questions. we can all become wiser, and I do see that as a process that we see things more clearly we 're less hampered by fixed ideas that that uh... aren't well grounded and that limit our capacity to see the world we see our interconnections with people we don't see ourselves in the same kind of isolation that we uh, atomized way we we tend to uh, today and we keep working at it we and we look for people We say oh that person is a wise person we all know wise people see, And we say, well, what is there about that person? What are the qualities that we like and admire in them? What is it that so many people respond to in the Dalai Lama? What is there in his humility, his humor, his attention, his presence, the way he listens as much as the way he talks? We say, that is a wise person. I I, I want to move in the direction that he's in. And uh, for the pre- for the present, I think the most important thing is for each of us to bring wisdom back into our lives as something that we care about. I mean, it's astonishing to me that wisdom as a notion has almost disappeared. People don't talk about it anymore. It's kind of embarrassing. When I walk into the uh, Bold Hall Law School in Berkeley, I walk in under a, 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 a large sign, the letters are this high, that says, we should all be studying wisdom. We, we are here to study wisdom, it's, it's at a law school. We're here to study wisdom so that we can order the affairs of mankind, it says. Uh, the order of the affairs of mankind with wisdom. So you think, well here's a law school, if, if I'm interested in wisdom, here's a place where I'd come to get an answer to your question. You'd be disappointed. Is there any course, is, I, I went through the catalog, is there a course that has the word wisdom in the title? And you go to the philosophy, look in the philosophy department catalog, too, and look for a course that has wisdom in the title. It doesn't exist. So I think before we can give an answer to your probing question, we have, we have to do uh, some work. And we can all agree that we should do that work.
0: Charlie Halpern, to do justice, to love wisdom, to walk with humility, with the divine force within us all. Thank you for your work. Thank you for supporting such an incredible network of people and organizations all over the country and around the world. And thanks to Point Raise Books for a great evening together. So okay.